The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. This is socially distanced. Actually, more than likely, you're not listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine because, well, you might be listening to it in Irvine. I don't know where you are. You might be listening to it in Cairo. You could be listening to it anywhere because this, uh, as we have gotten quite used to in the last couple months, is another special podcast edition of Socially Distanced because, uh, you know, basketball and uh college sports take have taken precedent on friday afternoons as they should weirdly they make more money than us <laughs> who would have thought and you know what else sports in the grand things in the grand scheme of things in life it's totally okay to like sports i don't i don't judge those who like sports that people who do that are annoying if you like your sports, you like your sports. But ultimately, pretty objectively, they're an unimportant thing. What we're doing here is inarguably even less important. So I think <laughs> give the priority to basketball. It's only fair. My name's Paxton Wright. <laughs> with my co-host, with me is my co-host Justin Kiever. Justin, how are you doing today? Uh, I'm doing okay today. It's been um, it's been a long day, but you know, and and more to come yet. But yeah, I'm doing all right. Can't wait. Can't wait. Um, yeah, well, that is good to hear. Let's let's just hop right into it. Current events. Um, so art has gotten unethical. There's a new form of art that's very unethical and shockingly stupid. And it's that's right. It's nation. a new Kings of Leon album. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still waiting on more Hoobastank. One of these days. I mean, it is a Kings of Leon album. That is among oh, the things we are actually talking about. That's right. Oh, you're not even joking. This is, <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, well, we'll get into that. Um, yeah, so um, Kings of Leon are exacerbating the effects of climate change. That's all you really need to know. Um, and everything we're saying, as absurd as it sounds, is true. Uh, so, Justin, uh, l- l- lead us into a story that is somehow even dumber than the GameStop fiasco that is only going on about a month after the GameStop fiasco. Oh man. All right. Well, I, where do I begin? So, so the thing that's gotten kind of a lot of press lately is uh, NFTs or non-fungible tokens and a non-fungible token. I'm just going to read from the Google thing that I just uh, got here, which is actually the Wikipedia thing that I got through Google. Thanks, internet. A non-fungible token is the digital file whose unique identity and ownership are verified on a blockchain. So, uh, yeah, so that kind of... Why do these things matter? Because they're being linked to uh, a lot of things that are now kind of like... Let's 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 take this back. Let's kind of never mind. Let's talk about how this emerged or how this emerged for me and my kind of like consciousness. Um, so a thing that got a lot of press lately is well, actually several things got a lot of press lately. One was a Kings of Leon album that is being sold as an NFT. That was where I first kind of encountered NFTs. There's also been a thing called NBA Top Shots, which is uh, a basically selling uh, like 
collectible and tradable NBA highlights. And, oh man, there was one other too, at least, oh, right. And then a lot of, um, then there's been like this rise of this conversation around uh, crypto art and the uh, selling of NFTs by uh, digital artists, uh, particularly an artist named Beeple, I want to say. I, th- I think so. It's something along those um, lines. Sold a, a collage of 5,000 of their works for something like $69 million. Ha ha. Um, and... So NFTs, they're making money and that means they're all in a lot of people's minds. So an NFT, yeah, is a non-fungible token. I guess like, yeah, let's just go ahead and go through this conceptually. It's a non-fungible token, which essentially means that it's a piece of metadata. Um, it is a... So it's one thing that's kind of important. Let's take this another step back. Sorry, I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna do this a lot. So anyway... There are basically, as we're seeing, kind of, um, there's this idea of the digital collectible is this kind of like central idea of like how people are talking about NFTs. Uh, To understand what an NFT, which is a non-fungible token, a like specific piece of metadata, what it is, we need to talk about the blockchain. So the blockchain is... I mean, something that I think is one of those terms that like people are familiar with, you know, like people know what Bitcoin is. We've been talking about Bitcoin and like cryptocurrency for, you know, like a decade now. And so there's this like familiarity with the term, but I'll say that I didn't really understand like what the blockchain actually was until like a week ago. I mean, that was the, that was the same deal for me. I, I've done my homework in the last week as, and I still don't fully understand. This is, we were kind of joking before we went on air, how similar this is going to be to the GameStop discussion, both in that terms of like actual, like in terms of substance and even just thematically kind of similar as we'll sort of get into, but also the fact that no matter how much research you and I seem to be able to do, this concept is still kind of intangible in a lot of ways, more so to me than you, but I'm, but like and blockchains in particular are where I'm quite lost on this issue. And I can't really seem to grasp what it is for lack of a better um, term. So, yeah. So I'll do my best to explain it. Uh, So a blockchain is a ledger. It is a decentralized ledger specifically. So, you know, a ledger being a record, like we think about bank ledgers, like bank ledgers are, you know, uh, records of transactions. And basically the uh, the whole thing with the blockchain is that it's a a ledger that, yeah, it's a, it's a decentralized ledger. And, you know, like a bank ledger is centralized, like it is subject to the, you know, like the authority of the bank and a blockchain is a decentralized ledger insofar as it is a ledger that is uh, cooperatively um, established among, like among all of the different users of the ledger. And my understanding of why it's called a blockchain is basically there are different kind of like segments of data called blocks and each time a block is basically each block contains a summary of all of the previous blocks so if you are rewriting a new basically you are always kind of like you know rewriting the history of the chain with each new block of data all of the blocks are chained together in this way and that's basically, and that's why it's called a blockchain. It's like, it, it is this record that is kind of like constantly being updated and like rewritten by through cooperative effort of all of its users. So it's now, at as once, so it's at once kind of a growing list, but also kind of a ballooning thing. Like, yes, that's a, yes, absolutely. Okay. Um, so, uh, <sighs> Okay, now where, where do we go from here? So that's, so that's basically what a blockchain is. And Bitcoin uh, and like other cryptocurrencies, uh, Ethereum, um, Dogecoin, the meme one, uh, I don't know. There's, there are a lot of meme ones. I don't know. I don't care about any of this. I feel like um, Bitcoin I, mean, I do I do either. care about it deeply insofar as I hate it. Let's be, let's be real. <laughs> like I'm talking about like, you know, like I, I feel like I have maybe expressed kind of a skepticism around centralized power and such on this show before uh and let me say that as much as i talk about like the decentralized nature of uh, like the blockchain and like cryptocurrency it's not good like it's it's not a good thing no um 
So, uh, the way, um, so the way like cryptocurrency kind of like works via this, uh, blockchain, this like, you know, ballooning list, um, is in my understanding, basically the way, uh, Bitcoin is produced is, or rather the way the blockchain is kind of maintained is, you know, like mm-hmm. through this kind of computational effort that is exerted by all of the different computers that are, uh, you know, accessing and attempting to, you know, write the blockchain. And I'm, and look, I know that I'm being like very imprecise here. I am doing my best. Uh, I should have had notes for this, frankly. And I, I don't. Mean, it's also a subject of vagaries too. It's, it's just like when you are dealing in a, um, you're talking about digital currency and a digital marketplace that is decentralized. Like it is inherently vague and inherently intangible in a lot of ways. So it is hard to elaborate on, which is why even like my friends who are really, you know, invested in cryptocurrency because everyone needs at least one in their friend group. um, You know, even they, like when they lay it out, you know, no one asked to hear <laughs> to hear um, the ins and outs of cryptocurrency, but they will tell you. Um, and even when they do, it's still even they don't seem to understand it 110 um, percent. Yeah. And I mean, inherent to the issue. And part of and part of why it's inherent is because like the thing that makes uh, cryptocurrency so uh, taxing on the environment and the thing that makes it kind of like so, and the thing that like allows it to function at all is basically it demands a lot of computational effort that cannot be undertaken by humans. So like there is this, um, so basically when, you know, people who are not super deep into computer science, say, try and like get their head around like what like the blockchain and like what the blockchain is and how cryptocurrency works, um, you have to talk about it basically through a metaphor. Um, so I'll say that like the uh, the best I think the best succinct explanation I ever heard of cryptocurrency was I think a tweet or something where basically someone said the way cryptocurrency works is your computer solves Sudoku's for you so it can make a currency that you can use to buy heroin. Um, <laughs> and yeah, and basically that that's kind of what it is like uh, on the blockchain. Uh, yeah, I'm just going to read from an article by Everest Pipkin that's about the environmental issues of crypto art. And because, uh, yeah, uh, because Everest explains this pretty well. So uh, they write, uh, major cryptocurrencies, most notably Bitcoin and Ethereum, uh, which and NFTs are traded with Ethereum, use a protocol to determine their value called proof of work. Proof of work, in essence, is a way to confirm that computational effort has been expended by the prover, the system doing the task. The idea was originally conceived in 1993 as a way to to disincentivize things like spam or bots. Proof of work was supposed to be unnoticeable by normal human users, but would make things like the thousands of requests needed for a denial of service attack hard to run. It's like a little puzzle for your computer. Fast forward to 2009, which saw proof of work used for a very different purpose, making the digital currency Bitcoin. This is a simplified explanation, but to make a Bitcoin, Bitcoin miners task their specialized computers to solve those proof of work puzzles, competing with one another to validate blocks in the blockchain. A successful solution, which is somewhat rare, rewards the miner with a new coin. The more a computer works, that is the more energy is expended, the more competitive it is. yeah, so basically the way the blockchain is maintained is also the way that Bitcoin is produced. And it is produced by solving these proof of work puzzles that are incredibly computationally taxing to solve. Um, there is also a, um, a limited amount of Bitcoin and Bitcoin becomes uh, like there is this artificial scarcity that is basically imposed upon it. And basically it becomes harder and harder to mint new Bitcoins through this process, like proof, like the proof of work becomes ever more taxing, which is, I think now why, like, you know, another reason that like uh, NFTs and the blockchain and Bitcoin kind of like hit the kind of public consciousness is there was a lot of videos passed around of these Bitcoin mining stations where you just see these like GPUs just, you know, stuffed into warehouses. And that, um, 
and the reason I think like that we're kind of like hitting that, like hitting this mode of consciousness is also because, you know, Bitcoin gets harder and harder to mine, which means that these like, you know, these uh, power stations, basically the, these like com- these computing stations get like ever more uh, large and, uh, you know, um, and they become even more of like a material spectacle to see. And we're seeing that now. So the blockchain is a decentralized ledger. Bitcoin is this thing that operates via a blockchain that, you know, you mint, uh, basically you mint new Bitcoin by updating this ledger. And uh, a lot of people are competing to basically solve these puzzles using these incredibly computationally dense, like they're using uh, through, through heavy computation, which is incredibly environmentally taxing. Yeah, and that's I think what I what I find most interesting about it too is that like because I feel like you I've only been hearing personally I'm sure I'm sure it's been discussed for the last decade now, but the environmental impact of cryptocurrency is something I've only really been hearing about in the last year or so, um, and I, I think it's because just as cryptocurrency becomes comes more and more into the forefront all the time. And is now seems to be finally being taken seriously as a legitimate form of alternative currency. Whereas, you know, from when I first heard about Bitcoin, which was probably around 2012 or so until again, pretty recently, it was always kind of a punchline. It was like, Oh, Bitcoin's coming up. Oh, and then it stock crashed. Ha ha ha. Oh, Bitcoin, you're trying. Like that was always kind of the, the, dialogue surrounding bitcoin from my perspective anyway for the last 10 years and now suddenly it seems to have a lot of legitimacy and now that it has legitimacy i've heard a lot more about the environmental impact as a result of it because as you said these sort of large warehouses of these gigantic gpus just just burning energy um and and i think what is so interesting to me about it is that even when I first heard about Bitcoin and I never thought it would take off and I thought it was going to be a nothing punchline. Um, mm. The concept in theory to me was interesting. I was, cause you, you always consider going digital and going paperless as the um, like a more conservationist con- conservation, conservationist, conservationist yeah. um, like the more conservationist alternative to paper. It's so why you go into a lot of, you know, trendy restaurants and that, you know, we're going paperless. Uh, we only accept card when you see so that. They're, they're doing that because they want to kick out the poor. I know, I know, <laughs> but it, but you know, they put the little, the little uh, picture of the leaf next to it. So yeah, yeah there, there's a tree on the thing. So it's <laughs> like, good, right? How can that be bad? Um, but yeah. And so, I mean, my initial thought was like, oh, that's an interesting theory is to just go purely paperless with currency. That's interesting. Um, and now to hear that actually printing money is, like a far more environmentally friendly alternative and it is not environmentally friendly but by comparison leaps and bounds healthier um is interesting to me yeah and i think that's kind of the the thing that's really interesting about and we'll get to like what nfts like actually are and why they're awful in a second but like i think the thing that's really interesting about this whole um story and about the way like people are like talking about the um the the environmental cost of uh, cryptocurrency is that really what people are identifying is a problem that's always been there with you know electricity and the internet and stuff like that that we just don't think about because like this is something that always kind of hurts to remember um every there's a carbon footprint to every google search you do Right. Like there is like every, everything you do online expends a certain amount of energy and like not very much, but you know, in the aggregate, like it's a ton of energy. So really um, there's always been, you know, like there's always been this like material cost to doing anything digital. And I think the, the aura of the digital, like this idea of, you know, like, you know, cyberspace, like this idea of like the dematerialized kind of like, you know, alternate reality that we like carry to, uh, you know, like our computers has always kind of hidden that from us. And I think, um, what, you know, like what cryptocurrency has been able to do is kind of, uh, 
by it's basically it is made a spectacle of like computational labor like it is and in a way that has forced us to confront the um the innate cost of like doing anything with electricity and i think like that is if something good has come out of this it's that it's like maybe that realization and i think the reason that people are so kind of like grossed out by cryptocurrency in specific and this is something that like you know people who like you know are really into cryptocurrency will like bring up when you talk about the environmental cost is like well no like you know like all of this has an environmental cost so why are you harping on bitcoin and the reason people are harping on bitcoin is because it takes so much like it, it is like an excessive amount of energy for what is being produced. And the thing is what is being produced is just a currency. And like, and like the thing is in the transactions actually just take, they take so much more, uh, you know, energy to actually uh, be processed than like anything that um, like, it just takes so much more like per, uh, per transaction. And that's so much uh, well, I think that to me is like my understanding of Bitcoin too is not just that it uses so much energy, but again, my limited understanding is that it's also kind of a pointless thing too. The only real value I'm aware of is, as you said, is like illicit goods and services, which yeah. people have been able to pay for long before Bitcoin. It maybe it maybe makes the process ever so slightly more mm. convenient. But, uh, you know, if you still want your, uh, you still want your, uh, illicit substances, you still want your, uh, uh, morally reprehensible forms of pornography, you can find it without Bitcoin. Like, yeah. And so here's the thing is like, so Bitcoin kind of like Bitcoin ends up getting used for all of these like black market transactions exactly because like it is a decentralized unregulated form of currency. And, and the, and I had a thought and I completely lost it. I'm sorry. You might. Well, I, I mean, ultimately it, it, I mean, I guess just to sort of simplify my point, it's not to say that uh, obviously it makes it far more convenient and it sort of, you know, makes that black market economy boom. Oh, oh um, right. Yeah. Um, and, and so, so yeah, it, it emerges for that. So the thing is like, it exists because there is a market for it, basically. Like, you know, people want to trade illegal goods and they need a currency that they can use without, you know, th that is not regulated. And so, you know, you talked about like the GameStop story and like one of the big kind of like lessons in the game embedded in the GameStop story is money isn't real. Like, that's the thing is like, you know, basically like, I mean, money's never been real, but especially like after the, the fall of the Bretton Woods system and basically after the ending of the gold standard, when money gets completely untethered from anything material, money becomes entirely this like semiotic, like it's just a sign. It's this empty thing that basically has value because, you know, like to be like kind of like, you know, vulgar and like reductionist about it, like because we agree it does. And that's sort of the mentality about money that justifies cryptocurrency to people who use cryptocurrency, which is to say that like, hey, you know, like this is just as valid as every other good. You can trade it for other goods. You know, you can buy like anything you want with it. And like, it's like, yeah, that's true. But the thing is, I can only, I can only buy, okay, put it this way. I know of one restaurant that'll take cryptocurrency like as like a form of payment. And I can only buy a meal with I could only hypothetically buy a meal with cryptocurrency because that like you know that marketplace can then trade cryptocurrency for actual money for like US dollars right mm -hmm. and that is the sort of like thing is like it's pointless it's as pointless as every other form of currency but the thing is like cryptocurrency is a system like, it only has value because it's one it has value because it takes a lot of energy to produce it and its value has to do with the energy expended to produce it. It also has value because the government would seize cryptocurrency as an asset when like, you know, arresting people who were doing illegal things and then, you know, invested in cryptocurrency because it wanted its assets to actually have value. And that's the thing is like cryptocurrency, it's a system unto itself. And there's always this promise that it will become the system. And that is and its value is this kind of like 
It's it's value is purely speculative. I mean, the the article that I read from by Bruce Pipkin says that it's speculative without speculation. Um, and yeah, it's because you always know that it's going to take more money. Therefore, it's always going to rise in value. But also, yeah, it is this uh, it is a system of currency that is completely kind of internal to itself. And yeah, and like it. And yeah, it has it has value only to the point that you can trade it for a more universally recognized form of currency. And that's it. Right. Uh, we are actually getting pretty close and need to take a break. So in this amount of time, we should uh, we should use this time to talk about what uh, what the Kings of Leon did um, oh, and right. why it's significant. Yeah. 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 Okay. So the Kings of Leon are releasing an album as an NFT. And like what that basically means is you can buy the NFT through whatever like crypto art trading thing online. And then you get a special version of their album with like some specialized art and et cetera, et cetera. So here's the thing that's really important to understand about that. Um, the NFT is not the art. It's not the music. The NFT is the metadata. The NFT is a specific transaction that says you bought this specific number. Now, once you have all the files, you could still distribute them like you would any file. But within the record, within like a blockchain, you have this specific purchase. And that's all. That's this purchase it. is done simply as a novelty. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. Like you, what you own, like what you, what the unique thing that you own in like, you know, when you buy an NFT is a transaction, like the actual file, the actual, like, you know, phenomenal kind of like thing that you experience, like, you know, you have that to the same extent that you have every other digital file. Like what you're really buying is the, like, it is this con conception of like this, an, an original on the internet. Like, you know, it's like, how do you like create like a digital original? You make it a transaction. Like that's the thing to me, like, you know, in addition to the environmental cost, it is also just like this complete equation of like a thing with its transaction. Like it is like this, it is like, it is pure capitalism. Like it, it is like the market distilled. And that is actually the thing that's like really, or like that is one of the things that's really gross about this to me is like, it's, yeah, like, like you know, you're, you own a transaction that, and also your ownership of this is completely interior to whatever, like to a blockchain. So it's entirely, yeah, like it is entirely within the system. It's pointless. Like you, that, that's the, that's the thing. Is it, I think that is what ultimately, uh, yeah, it both confuses and frustrates me about it is that it's, it serves to, you say, you say it's pointless and you're right. And it exists to largely to make a point, but in itself, in, in trying to make that point sort of exacerbates its own pointlessness. And on top of that, also kills animals and trees i mean like that's it's really just that's really just the cherry on top of it all um yeah it's incredibly bleak and just bizarre it's an incredibly bleak and bizarre phenomenon and i think the what remains to be seen is whether nfts and whether you know these forms of digital art and distribution oh there's the timer um whether these forms of digital art and distribution will actually catch on and snowball into a bigger trend or if they'll kind of fizzle and even if they catch on it will be in sort of alternative circles it will be in more alternative and niche circles but that doesn't mean it can't still catch on so uh, i'm curious to see which way it goes i could realistically see it going either way i could see more bands of kings of leon stature attempting something like this i think apex twin is doing it now that's disappointing yeah, i would expect that... i would expect better from apex twin i don't really expect better from kings of leon but i do <laughs> expect better from apex twin um, um and one more thing is like a quick kind of like maybe final note um so one other thing about like the whole like the, the romanticism of like it's a decentralized system we don't have to trust the banks anymore because the banks are bad it's like yeah well yeah the banks are bad fiat currency is bad but one thing that was kind of funny there's a thing on twitter where like a guy who bought a bunch of crypto art basically had his account hacked and all of it stolen 
And you know what authority he could go to to like get his like very expensive property back? Oh, it's gonna be something funny. What is it? No one, oh. because it's decentralized. <laughs> There's no one to appeal to. And he was like, "I'm gonna go to the cops." And it's like, "Oh, you want to go to the central state authority to, to solve this problem? Huh? Weird." I was like, hoping you were gonna say someone like I don't know, legal, legal, the the YouTube lawyer. <laughs> like, <laughs> I was hoping uh, it was going to be somewhat absurd, but nobody, nobody makes a better point. Yeah. Like just so. no one, there's no one there for, and, and yeah, we could go on, but we should stop. It's yeah. It's not great. Oh, it's not man. great folks. Well, when we come back, we're going to talk about a video game that came out over 20 years ago. So stay tuned. <laughs> That'll be in just a couple minutes for, with some, you know, we'll be back with some really relevant content. Talk to you momentarily. Listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, or you would be normally, this is a very special podcast episode. So you are listening to the internet. I am the host of the internet, Justin Kiever. With me is my co host, Paxton Wright. Hello, I am the co-host of the internet. This is, you should be, uh, you, you should feel so honored to be listening to us right now. You know, not a lot of people, um, you know, not, not a lot of people uh, uh, get our ear very often. Um, Bill Gates literally hasn't even met us. That's true. Yeah, no, like this is uh, this is a big deal. And, you know, like we only broadcast to the three people that listen to this show. Um, <laughs> uh, you know what it is. This is socially distanced. We are feasting and wasting. Um, you know, this is where we talk about the, uh, the media, what we have been feasting on for the week. This week, uh, Paxton has been feasting on something that I, contra uh, the foreshadowing in the last segment, I think is always relevant, eternally relevant. Uh, tell us what you've been feasting on, Paxton. Oh, it is, it is uh, always eternally relevant. Um, it, I have just, just about finished one of my, uh, probably my like 20 some odd, uh playthrough of uh lucas arts's uh masterpiece r.i.p lucas arts uh grim fandango um one of several masterpieces uh you know lucas arts had a they churned out a lot of content in their 20 some odd years of existence but um and a lot of it a lot of it not very good but boy, were there some diamonds in the rough in there. And I would argue that Grim Fandango might just be the shiniest of all. Um, Justin, you have played Grim Fandango, correct? Yes, I have started it 15 times or something thereabouts. Finished it once. Yeah, I mean, it's that's a reasonable, that's a reasonable um, uh, trajectory because look, as someone who would argue that it's my second favorite game of all time, my first also being a LucasArts game, which is Knights of the Old Republic 2, um, but that's another discussion for another day. Um, yeah, as someone who, who touts it as my second favorite game of all time, I'll be the first to admit that there is a, a, a drop-off in quality at around the 50 to 60% mark. But it's not a, not a significant enough drop-off to make it an experience not worth finishing but you the game the game kind of uh what's the opposite of a crescendo what's when the music gets really high uh, uh, well that's a crescendo decrescendo i thought a crescendo was when it goes down no 
Well, yeah, crescendo is when it goes up. Then, uh, then there's the well, crescendo not going high. It's it's getting louder. Like um, then that's that's what I mean. I I don't I don't know how to music. I I I played trombone for four years as a child and never got any better because I didn't like practicing. Uh, in in uh, the band that I started with, uh, one of my graduate student friends, I was the vocalist, which means I also don't know how to music. <laughs> uh, no, I should I should be clear. I I adore Grim Fandango. Um, I. Like, yeah, I, I think its best moments are in its first half. Uh, I think what really works in it is like conceptual and kind of like early character work. But yeah, I think it's an amazing thing. And I actually have like, it's actually like, it's very personally important to me, despite the fact that I've only finished it the one time. Um, but yeah, so I'm, I'm really excited to talk about this. Yeah, I mean, it's hugely personally important to me as well because it. I played it for the first time, I believe, in like third or fourth grade um, on my brother's old disc copy of it. Because my brother played it when it first came out, my older brother. Um, and I, I remember needing to download all sorts of programs to... You know, I don't know the exact terminology, but you know how like you can install programs to sort of make your PC think it's running an older version of Windows. You know mm. how you can do that. I had yeah. to do that on my mom's PC, um, mm. so I could play Grim Fandango um, yeah. back in like two thousand six, two thousand seven, um, and and I just remember immediately falling in love with it at that time, and and. I've played it so many times, despite the fact that unlike so many, uh, so many other games that I love lacks really any diversity in gameplay really lacks much in the way of gameplay at all. Um, I, I approach it now, now that I've played it so many times and I pretty much know how to solve virtually every puzzle from just, just memory alone. Um, like it's pure muscle memory at this point, I approach the game more like I'm just like, I'm rewatching a movie. Like I'm rewatching mm -hmm. one of my favorite movies because where that game shines is not in its gameplay. It's not even in its puzzles, which are really all the gameplay is. The puzzles are actually not very good in Grim Fandango. Um, unlike most Lucas, it's simultaneous. Is What's that? Is there an adventure game with good puzzles? No, but <laughs> but it, it, it falls into a weird gray area wherein it's far more intuitive than something like uh, Monkey Island. It's not so obtuse, um, you know, not as obtuse as like Day of the Tentacle or anything, but um, but less intuitive than something like a, you know, a Zelda dungeon. And it just kind of is middle of the road. Like you don't, you don't feel, uh, you don't feel challenged or spoon fed enough. It's sort of in a weird purgatory of, of difficulty in terms of puzzles, which sounds on paper, like it would be better than something like legend of Zelda, which is pretty spoon feedy. Um, but to me, I think like you get your best puzzles from something like a Resident Evil, where for the most part, it's all pretty, it's all pretty um, spelled out weird to you. Key into weird door. Exactly, but it's all the kind of thing where when you solve it, you're like, oh, that makes sense. Why I would have to do that? You don't really get that with Grim Fandango, but it's not so much like um, Monkey Island, where you're like, how the hell was I ever supposed to figure that out? Um, it exists yeah. in a weird place. That's neither here nor there. Where that game shines is in its just sheer explosion of art that is its general existence um it's i i mean it, it gets an a plus in virtually every respect in terms of the the script the art direction um the uh, uh the voice acting the music which is incredible um it just in i i mean graphically it's I mean, it's, it's a LucasArts, it's a 3D LucasArts puzzle game from the late nineties. It's, it's, you know, perfectly fine, but simplistic character models over pre-rendered backgrounds. So it's fine. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, like it's from that era of 3D games that could actually have pre-rendered backgrounds, which is to say, you know, like 
looks a lot better than a Mario 64. Um, yeah. yeah, no, like I actually, I think Grim Fandango holds up pretty well. Um, like the remaster particularly, it just says like, you know, it looks pretty much exactly the same, but like up and like with some like nice kind of uh, lighting effects. Um, yeah, it's, um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess like for, for the for the people who maybe not played this game, can you like give us like a little run up of like what the plot is? Yeah, basically, I guess just because the plot is sort of where it um, it shines the most, that's the thing to discuss. Um, so basically, the game uses um, it takes place in uh, the land of the dead, which is a hyper stylized take on um, on. Uh, Mexican culture surrounding the afterlife um, in particular uh, like sort of day of the dead Calavera art. Um, I I'm using the best terminology I can kind of um, you know, black velvet art, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, and uh, so kind of like Coco, it was like Coco before Coco, honestly, if you want to interpret it like that. Um, yeah, it's something it's sort of like Coco meets double indemnity. Um, yeah, it meets like Glengarry Glen Ross, which I think Tim Schafer said was like a, uh, a direct um, influence. Yeah. Well, that's actually the, it, I'll, I'll circle back to that in a bit. Um, but basically the, the premise of the game, I won't give away, even though it's a, you know, some, some odd 20 years old game. Um, I won't give away sort of the, the events of the latter half for a multitude of reasons. One being that not a lot of people have played it and I encourage people to play it. It is on uh, all modern platforms, the the remaster, um, which is just the superior version of the original. Um, so I, I would, I will not be spoiling it. It's also a noir. So like the entire point of it is the mystery. So it would be kind of a, but I'll, I'll give the setup at least mm-hmm. basically. Um, yeah. It takes place in the land of the dead. Uh, you start off in the city of El Marau, uh, wherein the inhabit it's sort of where everyone first goes when they die and the inhabitants are all yeah. Day of the dead Calavera skeletons. You play as the main character is uh, Manny Calavera who is uh, a, a, um, a travel a travel agent of sorts with uh the department of death um so he is a professional grim reaper and the way they sort of lay it out is um grim reaper there's not one grim reaper it's an entire sort of uh, corporate body um of grim reapers that's that do the job of bringing souls to the afterlife yeah um and so the way the the way the travel agency works is uh, uh, reapers bring people back to the afterlife uh, after they die, and uh, to their office in El Maro. And basically, depending on the kind of life people have led, you qualify for different packages, um, for different travel packages to make your way to basically the land of eternal rest. For, yeah, to like to heaven proper, basically. Yeah, exactly. It's not um, not like you know the Christian heaven, but like that kind of like you know par- paradise non-existence sort of and thing. That's kind of the that's kind of the interesting thing is there is such a mystique about what is on the other side, and in fact, no one knows, but everyone knows that they want to get to eternal rest because El Maro kind uh, the, the the land of the dead kind of sucks um, is sort of the <laughs> the implication, and so everyone kind of wants out, um, and so depending on the life you've led, you either you know if you've led a good enough life you can qualify for some sort of travel package to the other side uh however if you don't qualify for a peaceful other side transition you have debts to pay off which is what manny has to do um and so basically the the travel package you travel packages you sell um land start as low as a walking stick um, which is just, hey, best of luck making uh, the, your the Excelsior line. <laughs> yeah, that's right. The Excelsior line is the is what they call it. Um, but then because the top... I've started this game a lot. Yes. <laughs> um, and that that compass in the in the handle will sure come in handy. Um, <laughs> and so and then the the uh, the top premium package that everyone wants is tickets on the number nine train, which yep. is a a luxury train that will get you to the other side in. Uh, no time at all basically whereas the typical journey otherwise takes roughly four years uh Mm -hmm. so uh you end up 
you, so you, yeah, you play as an insurance, you, you, excuse me, you play as this travel agent, Manny, who basically over the course of years has been working to pay off his dues. However, he's been unable because in the last couple of years, all the clients he's been receiving are terrible and have led pretty awful. And so everyone is getting, you know, their walking sticks. They're getting the Excelsior line. Those are the best packages they qualify for. Meanwhile, his coworker Domino, um, who's got kind of, I guess, like sleazy Christian Slater vibes a little bit. Um, yeah. Yeah. Is sort of getting all the best package. He's, he's crushing it in terms of the clients he receives. And so there's a clear bias in terms of who's receiving these clients. And Manny doesn't know why, because Manny is still a hard worker. Um, so basically by way of solving some puzzles, uh, you end up ap- uh, uh, sort of, um, not apprehending, but you, you, you nab one, a domino, a client that was intended for domino. Yeah. Um, who's a woman named Mercedes Colomar, um, who was a, uh, in her former life was perfect across the board was a nun who volunteered for children, um, like worked at an animal shelter, uh, just like a, a model student of living. Um, yeah. and yet she qualifies for, no package really um which is completely baffling to manny and she ends up out of guilt out of out of remorse for manny sort of being left like caught with his pants around his ankles ends up just deciding to leave on her own um which then manny ends up sort of getting in trouble with his bosses and uh turns out that his bosses are in bed with a sort of shady criminal underground they try to kill manny by way of uh, sprouting him which is sort of the it's it's the land of the dead's equivalent of being murdered which are basically guns that cause you to sprout flowers and become a bed of flowers essentially um, which is a really yeah. cool metaphor because it's uh, normally a symbol of life in our world and it actually is a symbol of death in the land of the dead yeah, yeah, no, it's actually, it's super interesting that, yeah, in the land of the dead, how do you die? You are re- basically, you are forcibly reborn as something else. Yeah. Like it's, um, like, yeah, so like, yeah, but it, like the plot you're describing, it really does kind of like, you know, that it captures, I think, like what is so special about Grim Fandango, which is really, it's kind of, it's conceptual setup work, like this idea of the afterlife as a corrupt system. That also yeah. the people stay in forcibly, you know, like where it's it's corrupt kind of like from the jump because like as I think Manny mentions early on, like he doesn't actually know what he did in life. Right. He has to pay off a debt. Like there's just like this kind of unknowable, like, I mean, or like this undefined kind of like, you know, debt to pay. And yeah, like w- without cause, it seems. And the other thing that's really interesting is it's corrupt because like, even though people like, you know, you have like people have this desire to kind of, you know, to uh, enter the great beyond to, you know, leave the, uh, the land, like this kind of a purgatory behind a lot of people don't. And there's, there really is the sense of that, like, you know, people are kind of there because they can't imagine another way to be. And that's kind of the conspiracy about it too, is that in order to make the land of the dead livable, some people just some people just refuse to go because again they don't really want to fathom what's on the other side they like the familiarity of the land of the dead at least and others basically which is sort of what the main conspiracy of the game which again I'll I'll leave under wraps but the main conspiracy of the game sort of ties into that idea of exploiting others in order to uh in order to sort of uh gain gain an edge financially and make the land of the dead um livable for yourself uh yeah and so yeah it it, it, like there's a really interesting just sort of implied world to it all um some some things explicitly said and some many things implicitly said as well uh and yeah and and basically the game is segmented uh, again without getting too much more into the details because i'm realizing as i'm explaining it kind of how how many moving parts there are to this story because it's a noir it's a it's a big mystery to unravel with a lot of different characters some of whom are red herrings etc etc um so basically to keep things short uh the game is segmented over the course of four years as manny goes looking for mercedes colomar uh referred to as meche in short Mm. um 
basically on a tra- on a quest to sort of track down this this game's femme fatale um meanwhile under uncovering this big vast criminal conspiracy and in each chapter each chapter takes place in a different world um the first and each one kind of being like a yeah a a mexican day of the dead uh take on like kind of classic settings like the first one is kind of a noir sort of los angeles a little bit um it's kind of like a downtown la is sort of where the it starts off and then year two you sort of go to like a mixture of casablanca and also like like sort of small town port side uh uh uh, yeah. like Massachusetts a little bit but, but let's be clear it's mostly Casablanca it's mostly Casablanca <laughs> but yeah. it, it's Casablanca on the water basically yeah and then and then uh year three you move on to basically the the sort of weird industrial rig from City of Lost Children um and yeah yeah, God, yeah. I, I, that comparison had never come to mind oh well they explicitly say because one of their other really cool things about the remaster too is that it comes with developer commentary um and so and you can basically on virtually every screen you have an option to sort of listen to a quick blurb of commentary from everyone that worked on the game basically and yeah, yeah in year three they do explicitly say that a lot of year three's aesthetics were inspired by city of lost children okay um, that's really interesting yeah it's super cool and then and yeah, then year four, everything sort of comes to a head. You end up at a, a you, you sort of, you start in the sewers, which are very reminiscent of like the third man. Then you end up sort of in kind of big city nightlife, which is just sort of reminiscent of, I mean, a lot of stuff. And then it ends, it ends in a greenhouse, which is a reference to another noir film. And I forget which it's one I haven't seen. Oh, oh um, um. I don't know. It's one I have not oh, seen. Oh, but it's I a, don't know. It's a famous one. Yeah. Okay. Hold. I'm gonna look this up as we continue to talk. Look, but yeah, look this up in the meantime. Basically, but it's just yeah. It is. It is this sort of just. I think the thing I just love so much about it is that it is this big explosion of creativity, um, where things like things like uh, you know they 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 had hoped this would be obviously a big success um for lucas arts and it was not it was essentially the game that killed the adventure game because sales were so abysmal yeah uh, when it came out and it's a very it's a very sad kind of fitting though as it's a game that is all about death um but it is sort of like the swan song, the unintentional swan song of the adventure game a little bit until it sort of revived itself with the uh, early Telltale and then Telltale became its own thing, um, yada, yada. But it, uh, yeah, it feels like a game where mm. commercial viability was still secondary to just telling a great story and and just making a beautiful collaboratively creative vision and that's the other really cool thing that comes with the commentary too is hearing all these different arts and all these different sort of moving pieces of this game these people that sort of um got to sort of uh, were sort of given free reign on creative expression um yeah. and just sort of how well that paid off and it sounds like the kind of game that uh, my god i wish i could have been involved in some way shape or form back in <laughs> 90 97 or 96 because it just like i feel like i have one thing that's really great about i think gaming on a whole especially in the indie sphere but even a lot of the triple a sphere is that it is so um creatively liberating for a lot of artists obviously there's things like crunch and uh and people are sort of confined to specific visions in a lot of ways but there's a lot more room for yeah uh creative liberty than there is in a lot of other industries i think sort of my interpretation but it doesn't really i think get any more more liberal than grim fandango in that front (laughs) yeah i mean grim fandango is this just like you know, like as your kind of like summary of the game kind of captured, like it's this big pastiche work of like so many things that like holds together in such a like surprising way. I mean, partially because it's very self-consciously a pastiche, like when Manny, uh, you know, like when you like get the cut from like, you know, at the end of chapter one and you see like a year passes or whatever. And, you know, Manny is like there at the, at the diner, like wearing the white tuxedo and, you know, just like basically winking at the camera, like, Hey, 
y'all, y'all seen Casablanca, right? <laughs> like it's very, you know, like it, so it's doing that very self-consciously, but the thing is like, it holds together not because it's just kind of like, Hey, look at all these references. Like you have a really good central cast that like makes it all cohere really well. Like the uh, performance of the actor who plays Manny, who I do not think has done Tony much Plana. else. Tony Plana, who's his sort of other big role was he was the dad on Ugly Betty. That was sort of oh, his right. one other major role. Right. Yeah. yeah, like he turns in a really good performance. Like it's just, you know, like that's the thing is like there's just like all of these kind of like competencies of the storytelling. I mean, back when I was a little kid, back in like fifth grade and I was sort of first getting sort of on the internet and, you know, on different forms of social media and making accounts on websites, my go-to username for years was Manny Calavera7. I mean, like, he is, uh, to this day, to this day is probably my favorite protagonist in all of video games. Um, Just this very cool... um, And he's, he's such an interesting character because he's so, like, comically, like old school cool like very humphrey bogart cool Mm -hmm. but he's also uh he's also like very insecure and neurotic and obsessive on certain issue on certain subjects and like he's also got this insecurity because he carries himself with so much swagger um and is really sort of good at schmoozing and yet he's also like five foot four He's incredibly <laughs> short. Um, and it's just like, he's just a, uh, yeah, he's just an incredibly charming and unique character. He goes beyond, goes beyond the typical mold of like noir protagonist is just kind of mysterious, cool guy. And like, he's mostly mysterious, cool guy, but like kind of a square too, in a lot of very specific ways that are hard to sort of land on precisely. Um and a bit of a pushover as well. Like he's his his shortcomings are very specific and sort of hard to go into detail on, but they are they're funny and they do sort of give the character a lot more dimension. Yeah, I, I mean, one thing, um, a couple things. Like one, one thing, you know, like when we talked about, like, are there any good puzzles in adventure games? And you know, the answer being no. Like something that's really kind of. Uh, endemic to a certain era of adventure games like probably the pre-telltale era i guess is like all of these kind of uh all these like really absurd puzzles you know like with these like you know just absolutely absurd bits of logic that you know if you're lucky you can kind of like follow some of the narrative to like get clues but like it's just like all of these like combinations of things that don't make sense and the result of that is like the worlds of adventure games tend to feel very strange and even if they like you know ostensibly take place in reality and Grim Fandango, you know, like there are a lot of adventure games that don't take place in our reality, but like Grim Fandango like manages to construct a a world that feels absurd, both in like the funny adventure game way and like the frustrating adventure game way, but also like absurd in a way that I think resonates with, well, the world in which we live. Like that's sort of like my, my go-to thing is that like there's this like, it's fundamental setup is, you know, like there is a there is a better plane of existence that is possible, that is reachable through, uh, you know, like just travel, you know, and that is denied to people, that is denied to people based on, you know, a, a metric of like goodness that is ultimately becomes like obvious is like arbitrary and not fair, like, um, you know, rigged basically. And also people, you know, avoid it because like, it just seems like they don't want it. Like they want what they had before, or they want to kind of like, you know, accrue power in like a land, like this, you know, in this like purgatory, even though something better is possible, but they can't quite bring themselves to admit that. And I think and, that's, oh, go ahead. And I was, no, I was just gonna say, and I think that's, that's why this game hangs in my head in the way it does. It's got like all this wonderful art and like, you know, some really great characters and just a world that like is absurd, but absurd in the way that our world seems to be. And that's, I think that is one of the interesting things too, is because I like just being so in love with this story and this world, but just having played it countless times my entire life. um, I think one of the other things that really intrigues me so much about it is this, this idea that you're talking about is this world that, um, there are there's better things on the horizon but 
there is such a a fear to go for those and it's like that's one of my thinking too is like i i play that game and i think like if i ended up in this you know fictional land of the dead would i go for eternal rest and i don't think i would i think i would be too cozy with the familiar i would try and just sort of carve myself a life in this familiar setting until maybe it got too old but like there's also this fear of like hey eternal rest exists you can do that who knows what's on the other side but it exists or like you run the risk of maybe one day you end up getting sprouted and then you are uh, presumably just put in a world of nothingness and there's a lot of implications about uh death within death in that world that i think is interesting like there is a character who i won't say who but ends up dying quite a ways into the game by getting uh sort of ground up in like an almost like giant wood chipper kind of thing and it's a really gnarly intense death that it would be yeah it would be really intense if it wasn't a skeleton but it leaves a lot of implications as to like so is he just like conscious dust now what what happens to him um remember the bone dam yeah oh god the bone dam yeah there's a yeah. lot of like barbaric implications with that game uh anyway we gotta we gotta wrap up here i will say it is such a shame that we're doing this as a podcast uh because we have to use public domain music and i am very saddened i don't oh, get to use any Dango yeah. music in here yeah. however I, if we ever play this as a rerun on the radio i will assuredly put some in here otherwise i encourage those listening on here just do yourself a favor and look up that soundtrack it's i believe it, it i know it's on apple music it's on youtube it, it, it that soundtrack is a treat in and of itself even if you don't play the game it is just it's 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 one of the goats it's one of the goats um yes, all right great all right well we will talk to you probably next week I don't know. Well, next time we do the show, maybe it'll be yeah. a podcast. Maybe it'll be a radio show. Who knows? We'll see. Time will tell. <laughs> Indeed it will. T- All right. Take care, everybody. Take care, folks.